guest speaker, and it is Patrick Rieke. He is director of chaplaincy and volunteer services for the Parkview system, which includes uh, Parkview Regional, Randalia, and the outlying hospitals like the one in Columbia City. Uh, Chaplain Rieke is from this area, and uh, uh, he accepted this position to be uh, a chaplain and the director of chaplaincy. Before that, he was a pastor of one of the local churches here in Fort Wayne. Um, Pastor Ryan mentioned the small world connection. Um, He and Patrick's wife grew up together, and so when the the Cochrans came to Fort Wayne, the first thing, one of the first things they did was to look up the Rikis and and establish a friendship. Uh, Patrick has written a very interesting book. It's available on Amazon. Uh, uh, I checked that. And the book is entitled How to Talk with Sick, Dying, and Grieving People. But I love the subtitle. When there is no magic words to say. And so, uh, as believers, God uses us in many different ways. And uh, while I'm doing this, you can hand out the handout. Uh, we have a handout for you. And, uh, but we, many times, are placed in situations where uh, we are around people who are sick or dying or uh, people who are grieving. And we sometimes just get get afraid and say and stay away because we don't know what to say. And so and I can hear some of you already uh, diving in and I, I appreciate the uh, excitement, but if you can keep those closed until the very end we'll we'll reveal those. Okay. It's a surprise and there's money in it, so don't open it. No. <laughs> You find out there's no money in it. <laughs> chaplain, chaplain, cut me off. <laughs> well, I love a noisy congregation. And I have noticed this morning you all are a noisy congregation. <laughs> there you go. I didn't think it would take long to prove the point, and so, so thank you. Um, we pastored a small church in the area here before I stopped doing that when I, after I'd gone full-time at Parkview, and we, one of the things I enjoyed very much was um, we would take a little break, similar to what you've done already today, and allow people to talk with one another, and after some time of doing that, it, be, it began to be difficult to recall everyone back to the service and to uh, worship and to, you know, the, the most important part, of course, the sermon. Um, when I was getting ready to deliver it, and, and I'd say, hey, hey, be quiet. You know, it's, it's time to, to come back together. I think it's a mark of a church that loves one another. It's a signal that we're not just attending a show, right? But that we're sharing life with one another, that we're loving each other, that we're catching up with people. I've already been um, spoken with several times, and people have recognized that I wasn't a face that was here every week. Um, and that was even before I had this on my face that identified me as, as the guest speaker and people reaching out to me. And so hearing that in the cracks of the service already so far today um, is a blessing to me. There will be a couple points in time where I'm going to ask you to participate today, and I have a sneaking suspicion that won't be a, a problem at all <laughs> for, for Broadway Christian Church. So. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here today. 
Um, so we do want to talk a little bit about this difficult topic, and I, I promise we won't talk about it in a, a heavier way than is necessary, but of course we will uh, deal with it in somewhat of a serious fashion. So I want to begin with a story. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. Introduce my family. So this is my lovely wife, Kristen, uh, sitting in that row next to Ann Jones, and this is my lovely daughter, Kelsey. Uh, my not-as-lovely sons, uh, Daniel and Levi, and Aiden loves the balcony, so I think he's up uh, up above someplace, too. There he is. He's way, way back in the back, so thank you for, for being with me. So you can pray for them, because they have to listen to me preach every day, and now they have to do it on Sunday morning this week, too. So. I want to introduce you to uh, Bethany, and we're going to talk about Bethany over the course of the rest of the morning. Um, Bethany, I want you to think of as someone that you've known for a long time. And so Bethany and Brad met in college. They fell in love and began their lives together. Um, they were married and started a family, and, and now they have three children. Haley is 12, Micah, who's a, a boy, is five, and their baby is Emma. Up to this point in time, they've sort of lived the storybook Christian life with Bethany accepting Christ as a part of your church when she was young, going off to college, finding someone that, that loved Christ the way that she did, and then falling in love with each other and beginning their family. But during her recent pregnancy with Emma, there were some routine screenings that showed something concerning. Not concerning, not concerning for Emma, but concerning for Bethany. And so the rest of the pregnancy goes by, and Emma was born, and she's a beautiful uh, baby girl, healthy, doing well. But then your phone rings. And you've had those phone calls, I know, as I have. And you could tell from the first part of the conversation that this isn't going to just be a hi, how you doing sort of phone conversation, right? So your phone rings, and it's Bethany's dad. And they've gotten the test results back that they've been waiting for after Emma was born with regards to Bethany's health. And he says, Bethany has stage three cancer. He says, please pray. We need a miracle. So I sat in your church this morning and, and considered the altar here. I thought to myself, how many prayers have been prayed? How many tears have been shed? How many hearts have been broken at this altar over situations like we're talking about today? So let me ask you a question. Does your spiritual life, if you're old enough to think back this far, does your spiritual life today look like your spiritual life from 20 years ago? No, no. Okay, so instead of talking about how, what I want to talk about is why. Why has your spiritual life, so when I say your spiritual life, I mean your values, beliefs, purposes, the way you interact with God. Why has your spiritual life changed in the past 20 years? And that's not a preacher question, that's a real question. How, why has your spiritual life changed significantly over the past 20 years? Tell me again. Situations change, okay? Say again. We grow in our, in our understanding, in our relationship with Jesus. What else? Okay, so, we, so all the difficult things that we experience sometimes changes how we respond to them. We're desensitized to that. What else? 
the proven word of God, so as God continues to work in our lives and show himself faithful to us. Your faith grows? So I want to pre so, so tell me a little bit about what sort of experiences causes your faith to grow. Okay, so it saved you from a lot of things that you couldn't come through on your own. Yeah, back in the back. Yeah, it's exciting. We see the Lord working. So, one more. Say it one more time. Struggles. What, what sorts of struggles? Okay, anything that tests your faith? Somebody said storms. Storms. Give us a little bit of what you mean by storms. Loss of family members. Yeah, it was really difficult things that really hit us in difficult ways. Yes. Your environment changes. Yep, absolutely. So what you experience in your daily life is, is very different. So behind quite a few of these is, is pain, right? Um, even, even, even the good stories. Uh, God saved me from that. Well, there had to be something to be saved from, right, before you get to that point. Obviously, the loss of loved ones, struggles, storms, difficulties. And even when we say how many times God has proven himself to be faithful, that means there was something we were struggling with for God to prove himself faithful, right? Alan says that when we get desensitized to things, that's because we're, we're being exposed to all the difficulties of this life. And so I think the primary thing, and Richard Rohr, uh, Father Richard Rohr, I highly recommend his books if you haven't ever seen those. He talks a lot about we grow most when we go through difficult times. And you've experienced this, especially anybody over about the age of 40 right now is not in their heads. You know, so some of the younger people are looking around saying, what's, what's for lunch? You know, that kind of thing. But if you're over 40, you've experienced this and you're not in your head. And you know that the reason that your spiritual life today doesn't look like it did 20 years ago is primarily because of going through difficult times. And so we want to consider three phases of how our spiritual life changes this morning. Phase one is usually where our spiritual journey begins. And this is with the message, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And this is the, this is the gospel, right? This is what we communicate um, at the very beginning of our Christian walk. It's the gospel we tell to our children. I guarantee one of the lessons upstairs today is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It is conventional wisdom. This is sort of uh, cuts across most um, denominations of Christianity. This is a, as a consistent message across uh, a lot of different disciplines. We hold on to this truth even when life gets difficult. So even when we're going through those more difficult times that we're going to talk about as we go on, we still hang on to this initial truth. God loves us and has plans for our lives. And I would say it's the truth. And so before we go any further this morning, if this is a truth that you're still struggling with, hear that this is the truth. So from, from somebody who's going to be talking mostly as we go on into, into phase two and phase three, here for me, even though um, what we see at the hospital day in and day out is a lot of difficulty, struggle, death, dying, sickness, trauma, you know, victims of violence coming in, even though that's my daily work every time I go to the office, um, here for me, from that perspective, this, phase one, is the truth. God loves you and has plans for your life.
The theme verse here, of course, is Jeremiah 29:11. The verse that is imprinted on every Christian graduation card that's ever been created, right? Jeremiah 29:11. 20, I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a hope and a future, to prosper you and, to, and not to harm you. That idea that God has, has plans for us. This is the story that Bethany accepted when she was a young child. And that many of us accepted at some point, whether we were young or, or a little bit older. Then phase two comes in. After the dawn of our spiritual lives, we encounter problems. And then God's help as we overcome those problems becomes the theme of our spiritual journey. So phase two is God will help you overcome your difficulties and your struggles. For some time, um, I was in youth ministry. And when you're talking with kids, some kids have gone through difficult times already at a young age. Others, their difficulties and their struggles still might lie ahead of them in the future. Um, now, I'm sure when I was a teenager, I thought I was facing many dangers, toils, and snares. And um, some teenagers really do. I'm not sure I was one of them. Um, looking back, my, my home life was secure and we were, we were doing just fine. Um, but one thing I used to tell my teens is, if you haven't really faced any of the, the storms of life, um, the real struggles and difficulties of life, here's my advice, just keep breathing. Because if you keep breathing long enough, you will encounter difficult times. If you can stay alive long enough, you will encounter the storms and the struggles. This is a promise of Jesus, right? He said, in this life, you will have trouble. There's no way around it. None of us gets off of this planet if we live long enough without facing some difficulties, storms, and struggles. So now God will help us to overcome. The theme verse here is Romans 8.28. We know that God works all things for the good for those who love him. Leading to 8.37. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is where Bethany's dad, where Bethany's family are at right now. When he called you and he said, Bethany has cancer, please pray. We need a miracle. What's he communicating? He's saying we need God's help. He's saying we need to come to the altar. We need to bend our knees in prayer and ask for God's help to get past this difficulty and this struggle. So the phases. Phase one is about plans. Phase two is about help. Now here's another real question. When you imagine yourself getting that phone call from Bethany's dad, asking for prayer and saying we need a miracle, how did you feel? You've had these phone calls before. Hopeless. Hopeless. Helpless. Worthless. Worthless. Wow. You guys are knocking it out of the park. You're, I was worried about being able to go deep. You guys are I'm not going to have to worry about that. <laughs> Hopeless, helpless, and worthless. Let's just stick with those three. But, but we have the opportunity to pray, right? We have the opportunity. Bethany's story isn't over, and we know that, right? We know, and when we say help, hopeless, helpless, and worthless, we're not trying to communicate that we don't think God can heal her, right? We absolutely, I, I would, if we did a poll, nearly 100% of us would say, a young woman, even though it's stage three, facing this, God can do the impossible. He can work a miracle. He can heal her. We have faith not only in God, but there's lots of opportunities medically that can be taken 
Um, and so we would not say we're giving up by any stretch of the imagination. However, I asked, how do you feel? And you said, helpless, hopeless. This is a difficult place to be. It's difficult to be Bethany. It's also difficult to be Bethany's dad. It's also, for all of us, it's not easy to be the one Bethany's dad picks up the phone and calls and says, we need prayer. We need a miracle. So what to say? So we're going to look at a portion of Job that maybe you haven't looked at for a little while, and we're going to kind of look at it through a little different lens. Um, so Job chapter 2, if you have your Bibles with, it, with you, you can follow along in Job chapter 2. We'll be there for just a little bit. If not, it'll be on the screen here. So this is after Job's had ex his experiences. Many of you know the, the story of Job. He basically loses everything, um, and then he goes and he sits down in a field to grieve and to, and to mourn and kind of to pray. So in Job chapter 2, verse 11, it says, When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, heard about all the troubles that had come upon Job, they set out from their homes met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. You ever been there when you go to support someone and you can barely recognize them because of the, the despair that they're in? They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Job's friends were silent for seven days. Today, seven seconds of silence can feel like an eternity. My kids even have a phrase for awkward silence moments. Right? We don't do very well sometimes having silence when other people are around. Can you imagine an experience where you would be silent for seven days? Why were they silent for seven days? The scripture is clear why they were silent. They were silent because they saw how great his suffering was. Because what do you say? What do you say to a man who's lost everything, whose family is gone, whose business is gone, whose structures are gone, whose house is gone? What do you say? There's nothing that can be said. So they were silent for seven days. And so we're going to learn a few things from Job's friends. Now, if you keep reading the book of Job, you'll see that they didn't stay silent forever. Eventually, they started to speak. And, uh, and God says, your counsel obscures who I actually am. And so eventually, they started to vocalize things. And God, interestingly, I had not considered this until this morning, as we sang the, li the lines, as deep cries out to deep. Interestingly, as they began to speak, God stayed silent. And we don't like the silence of God. We don't like it when we're looking for something. We're trying to solve something. We're trying to resolve something. We're trying to get help from something, and God stays silent. But you know what else we don't like? is when we're in grief and we're in pain, and someone in, comes in and starts babbling to us. We don't like that either. And so Job's friends stayed silent for seven days. Then they started to speak, and God stayed silent for quite some time. 
And when he spoke, he said very little about what they were talking about. So we learn how to care, though, in these seven days from Job's friends. What else did they do? They sat down. You see a little asterisk there. There was a study that the University of Kansas Nursing Department did. And they had one physician um, who they studied. And they would follow this physician, come into a room, and they would have the physician stand over the bed and talk with the patient about what, you know, they didn't influence what he was talking about. He would have that conversation with the patient he needed to have, and he would leave. And they would time him, okay, he was in there for 11 minutes, you know, that kind of thing. As he walked out, they would walk back in, um, the researchers, to the patient and say, how long uh, do you feel as though the physician was here? And then they would flip the script and they would tell the physician, when you go in, sit down. Sit down next to the patient, have a conversation with the patient, and they would time him. Okay, he was in there 11 minutes, and he'd get up and he'd walk out. And they'd go back in to the patient and say, how long do you think the doctor was here? And what do you think happened? You can guess already. You're probably ahead of me. When he stood for 11 minutes, the average response was something like he was here for eight or nine minutes. They estimated that he had been there for a shorter period of time when he was standing. When he went in and he sat down and he had a conversation with them, if he'd been in there for 11 minutes, they estimated they'd been, been in there for 14 or 15 minutes. They experienced that he cared more and that he spent more time with them when he sat down next to them, when he got on their level. Several weeks ago, um, now I, I lead our chaplaincy department, and you know what it means to be a leader, right? When you're a leader, it means you sit in the office, answer emails, and go to, go to meetings. And everybody else does the important stuff of actually going out and caring for patients. And so that's my role, typically. Um, but a couple weeks ago, we had a, a situation um, that demanded a little bit more from our department even than usual. And so I got a message from another leader with our, um, our women's and children's hospital saying, there's been a young, very young person who's died. It's been very sudden, and it's hurting the staff um, and the family and everybody involved. And so I walked down the hall to where this room was, and I came to know a little bit about the situation, and I became aware that when I walked into this room, there would be three people present, two living and one dead. As I walked into the room where mom and dad sat with their little dead child, it would have been impossible to stand. It would have been impossible to stand over them. In fact, I went in with a couple other people, and they were the only ones in the room as we walked in. And there was only one open seat in the room, and I sort of elbowed the other people out of the way so I could sit in that seat because I knew there's no way to stand in this room. You can only sit. You can only get down with them and be with them in the midst of that situation. So I, I think that Job's friends had obviously read the study from the University of Kansas uh, Department of Nursing, and they were well aware that uh, Job's perception of their time spent with him um, would be impacted, or they just knew by nature innately that when someone's hurting that badly, you sit down with them. They wept out loud. 
One of the most common questions I get when I talk about what it's like to be a chaplain and when we go in with all these different situations where people have been traumatized, um, had life-altering experiences, or they've experienced the loss of a loved one in the moments while we're in the room or just before we're in the room, one of the most common questions I get is, how do you do it? How do you hold it together? And is it okay to cry? Now, we are professionals. We wear a badge, and we do electronic documenting. So you, you, have, you have to maintain at least some level of professionalism when you go in the room. However, my most honest response to that question is, if you ever stop crying over these situations, you stop being a human being. And you have to shed tears, um, especially when it's someone that you care about. And you're watching them go through what they go through. So Job's friends sat down. They wept out loud. Interestingly, four men, men sitting together, and three of them alongside the one who's in pain, and they wept out loud. Third of all, they heard. They listened. I guarantee um, that even though there was silence in those days, that there was probably a couple of times that Job told the story. And sometimes you just need to tell the story. If you've gone through a painful time like this, you may have found yourself telling the story of what happened over and over and over again. And there's something therapeutic about telling that story. We're still telling the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years later because of the impact, the trauma, and the hope that that story gives us. And so I guarantee, as the scripture says, they heard and they listened to Job's story. And then they sympathized with him. They put themselves in his shoes and tried to imagine what he would feel like. So although caring for people in this difficult time is simple, it is not easy. But I'm going to give you three uh, simple, not easy, steps to caring for people in this. Sit down, shut up, and cry. <laughs> and if you've ever been that person, as in the midst of that trauma, you know this is what you actually want people to do, right? First of all, you want people to go, to show up, to be alongside of you, and then you want them to come in, you want them to sit down, to be alongside of you and what you're going through, and then to listen to you, to absorb what you're having to say, and to cry and to grieve along with you. So phase three. Phase three begins when we feel we will no longer be able to overcome this difficulty. So let's be honest for just a moment. I'm not doubting God. I'm not putting God down for what he can and cannot do. We've already sort of crossed that bridge, right? But there are times, <clears throat> there are times that you've been praying for somebody to get better, and at some point you realize they might not get better. There are times you've been praying for a relationship to be fixed, to be healed, a financial situation to be resolved, and at some point you begin to realize this may not turn out the way that I've been expecting that it would. And that's when we trip into phase three. So phase three, once we, we begin to feel as though God's not going to help us overcome our difficulties, at least not in the way that we anticipated, finding meaning can then become the theme of our spiritual journey. So God will help you find meaning in the midst of your suffering. Notice that I've chosen the words carefully here. I didn't say God will make your suffering make sense. Your suffering may never make sense to you. Your suffering may never make sense even to people outside of your situation. 
And when you tell them about this happened, then this happened, then this happened, it may never make sense, but that doesn't mean we can't find meaning and purpose in the midst of that suffering. So now the theme is not plans or help, it's meaning. I'll be honest with you, when I finished uh, the book, which was just six months or so ago, I could not find a good theme verse for phase three. It was difficult to do. I had a lot of almost, like this almost fits with what I'm trying to describe here. So this verse isn't highlighted at all in the book, but it came after that time, and I want to share with you why I think this fits. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands about something in just a second, but I want to previously give you permission to, if you don't want to do that, <laughs> to raise your hands, you have that permission as well. But if you've ever been at the bedside of a person at the moment of death, when you raise your hand, okay, wow, wow. So first of all, it takes courage even to raise your hand for that because it brings back that time when you did that. Second of all, for those of you who raise your hand, let's reread this verse, and I want you to picture yourself back in that moment. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. When you're at that bedside, as tragic and as difficult and sad and painful as it is, you have some sort of sense often that you're connected with all of eternity, with some large arc that God is, is creating from the beginning of all things until the very end. And you have some sense of not only being connected with the past, but also of being connected with the future. And so when I say connected to eternity, I kind of mean heaven, but I kind of mean something even bigger and broader than just the concept of heaven. The idea that eternity permeates this world, that eternity permeates each heart, as this verse says, that he set eternity in each one of our hearts to be able to connect us to him, and when we're in that moment, we experience eternity. So phase one is about plans. Phase two is about help. Phase three is about meaning. Meaning like legacy-making, Forgiveness, reconciliation, wisdom giving, love, and companionship. We all know in our normal workaday lives that love and relationship matters more than everything else. We know that. Do we practice life that way all the time? Of course not. You still have to pay the bills, do the laundry, keep up with the chores, do, do the things every day that you have to do. But when you are dying, or when you are at the bedside of someone who is dying, all of those things fade away, don't they? All of those things that have some significance but not the eternal weight, all those things get pushed to the side. And all of a sudden, in that moment, in that season, you're able to really focus on these things that we would all say, this is what really matters. Our chaplain was in a hospital room several years ago talking with a patient 
And you have to, in the hospital, sometimes be very quiet and listen to people. Because when, if you've ever been hospitalized or you've been very sick, even having sentences come out of your mouth can be a struggle sometimes. And that was the case here. And our chaplain was listening to this man um, who had no family to come be with him in, in our oncology unit. He was all alone as he faced cancer, and it was very serious cancer. And so they talked about who might be able to come up, and he gave our chaplain reasons why each of these people in his life would not want to come up and see him, would not want to be here for him through this time. And he listed a son, an adult son, and he said, uh, we had a fight several months ago, and we haven't talked ever since. And so our chaplain kind of was bold for a moment. And usually we just listen and pray, you know, and, and we're sort of just there. But he was bold for a moment. He said, well, would you like it if he did? And there was a long pause. And the chaplain thought maybe he'd gone a little, pushed a little bit too much. And he said that the man was looking down in his lap. And then tears started to come down in his face. And he realized that the man was looking at his phone. And he said, yes. I would like it if my son came to visit me. And in that moment, as the chaplain stood to leave, um, he picked up his phone, he found that son's contact information, and he touched the button to call his son. I wish that man would have never had cancer. I wish that man would have never had to face the the life-threatening illness that he was facing that day. I wish that none of that would have been his reality, but you know what? I'm sure glad they had the opportunity for reconciliation in a relationship at that time. So Bethany uh, faced surgery right away. Uh, She went through radiation and chemo treatments. It was um, extensive. You kept up with what was going on with her, with regular updates, continuing to pray for her, for Brad, uh, for the kids, and for the rest of the family. And then she was said to be in remission, and she was going to be okay, young and healthy otherwise. Then your phone rings again, and you have the same sense you did the first time. The cancer comes back, and there's a second round of treatment. And at the end of that one, although they say she's in remission, the doctors are less optimistic. If you've watched a person go through radiation and chemo, it's difficult on the body. Um, And so even beyond the cancer, uh, Bethany's physical um, health is deteriorating. And then you have lunch with Bethany. And you sit down across the table, just the two of you, and you start to think maybe the two of you haven't actually talked just the two of you since all this began. And so you sit down at a table across from her, and the conversation this time has changed. You still think of her in phase one. You think of her as that little girl that came to Christ at your church and had all these great plans before her, and God's working on her behalf and moves her into this wonderful college experience, and then she gets married, and she has these kids, and you think of her in phase one about plans, and then you see in your mind her dad, who's in phase two, saying, we need to pray and get over this struggle and over this difficulty, but Bethany, Bethany's landed in phase three. She says, I know I'm going to die. Research shows that when a person who's been sick for a while says, I know I'm going to die, they are right. They are right. She says, my kids will lose their mom before any of them reach adulthood. 
I know Brad will be a widower before he even reaches middle age. You swallow hard and ask, well, what do you want to do? And then you hope that's not the stupidest question anybody could ever ask a person in this particular moment. She looks down, she's looking at her coffee, and you can tell that she's deep in thought and that she's probably been that way for quite some time. And she says, I, I like to write. Maybe I should write letters. If I do, can I give them to you and you can hold on to them until I die? You waded into phase three. The biggest mistake we can make when a person comes to us and they're over that tipping point where they've accepted that they're not necessarily going to overcome this struggle and difficulty in the way they previously thought they would, the biggest mistake we can do is try to push them back into phase two or push them back into phase one and say, but no, God has plans for you. Yes, God has plans for me, but that's not exactly where I'm at. It's still true for me, but that's not the phase I'm in right now. Yeah, but God will help you to overcome. One more round of chemo. Let's find one more second opinion. Let's take you to another state, etc., etc. Let's go through all these things, and you're trying to push them back into phase two. But if they've landed in phase three, the best thing you can do, like Job's friends, is just to wade into that moment with them. And because you waded into that moment, and instead of telling Bethany, well, you know what? I, I read on the internet some new treatment that might work for you. Instead, you said, what do you want to do? And you went into that phase three with her. You loosen your grip on help, and you reached for meaning. So Bethany, like many others, was right. And seven weeks after your lunch with her, where she asked if she could write letters and give them to you, she was at home on hospice, laying in her bed in the middle of the night, the hospice worker attending to her, and Brad um, laying in the bed beside her, with his arms around his precious wife, his tears anointing his beloved. In the family room sat Bethany's mom and dad keeping vigil, continuing to pray, continuing to love Bethany, continuing to support Bethany and Brad no matter what the outcome was. And the kids just down the hall asleep would wake up the next morning to hear the news, but they'd be surrounded by grandparents who cared for them and their dad who had loved their mom all the way to the end. You have a stack of envelopes that Bethany, over the past, I don't know, the last week or two, she wasn't able to write, but over the, the four or five weeks after you met with her, she started to write letters. And she started with Brad and then went on to the kids and went on to her parents, but then she kind of kept going and started writing letters to lots of other people too. And every time you would pass her in the hall at church or you'd meet up for coffee, she'd slide you another small handful of envelopes with people's names written on the front. And so you come to the funeral and you have a stack of envelopes from Bethany under your arm with these messages to people that are important to her in her life. You walk into the funeral, and you make your way through the crowd down to the front where Brad is located, and you pull a piece of paper out uh, from this stack of envelopes you have, and it has his name, it says Brad, right across the top, 
and it's written in Bethany's handwriting. And you kind of assume, because they were very close, that maybe he already knew about this letter writing project, and you were wrong. <laughs> so when you handed the letter to Brad, he had a shocked look on his face, and he said, this looks like Bethany's handwriting, but it can't. About that time, Haley, who's a freshman now, bounces up, and you have a letter that has Haley's name on it in her mom's handwriting, and you hand it to her, and she's always been more intuitive than Brad. She gets things a little bit more quickly than her dad does, right? Uh, say amen, dads who know that their, their daughters get things before you do. And Haley bounces up, takes the, the letter from you, and immediately knows what it is, clasps her hand over her mouth, and throws her arms around your shoulder. You hand a letter with, Mike, with Micah's name on it to him. He says, cool, puts it in his back pocket and walks away. You hand Emma's letter to Brad and it'll be something for her later. And so through the rest of the funeral service, you're, you're passing out letters before the service actually begins and um, people are responding in so many different ways and you approach Bethany's dad and you have a letter for him and he's not surprised. He ended up being sort of her accomplice through the whole thing, helping her to have times where she could write, where no one else would bother her, where no one else would be in tune with what she was doing. And so he's not surprised at all when you hand him the letter. But he looks across at you and he says, you know, after she had lunch with you a couple months ago, she came back and something had changed. She had a sense of being at peace and being settled and knowing that although what was coming was going to be devastating for her, devastating for the rest of the family, that she was able to find meaning and purpose in the midst of this. And so as her dad um, also puts his arms around you and says, thank you. Thank you for having a conversation with Bethany that I couldn't have at that time. This morning you were given a letter um, in your hands. And so we're going to take the next few moments and you can open those now if you haven't already and take a minute and read through Bethany's letter that she's given to you to read to the entire congregation at her own funeral service. Phase one, God loves me and has a plan for my life. We don't ever actually truly leave phase one, do we? Um, but we just sort of add to it as we go on. Phase two, God helps me when I face difficulties. Phase three, God will help me find meaning in my suffering. First of all, be aware of what phase you're in. Second of all, if you're trying to support someone, figure out either directly or indirectly what phase are they in. And then practice what I call withness in their phase, not yours. This cuts both ways. You might feel as though I can see the handwriting on the wall. This isn't going to turn out the way they think it's going to turn out. If they're still in phase two, man, cheer them on. Pray. Pray that God helps them to overcome that difficulty. Pray that God works a miracle. If you want them to be in phase two and continuing to fight, continue to pray and try to get over whatever it is, but they're in phase three, you need to go ahead and step out of your phase and into theirs and be with them in that. So there's three groups of you I want to say a final word to. One is those people who regularly find yourself being the person who supports people like Bethany. And you're not quite sure why those situations always seem to end up coming to you. But for whatever reason, you've interacted with people in, in this phase three situation quite often. And for you, what I want to do is affirm you. 
want to affirm that you being present with those people, caring for those people, is the best thing that you can do for them. The second group of people is people who want to help but aren't doing it a whole lot for people in those situations because you're not sure what to say. Okay? This may be a large number of you. You want to help people in those most difficult situations, but what am I going to say? My dear mother, who is as Catholic as the Pope, maybe with this Pope, she may be a bit more Catholic <laughs> than the Pope. It's possible. And she loves to pray, and she loves to try to find God's purposes behind things. Her best friend in the world died recently. And she would go over and visit Norma, and she'd be with her, and she would sit with her. And she said, but I always feel like I need to pray, like I need to say something. There needs to be something that I say. And um, in a very awkward moment, she read her son's book. <laughs> and then she said, the next time I went, I didn't really say anything. I just sat with her, I held her hand, and I told her how much I loved her. So for those of you like my mom who you want to help and your heart's totally in the right place, but you're just not sure what to say, let me just give you permission to not say much at all, but to just show up and be the presence of God. And for the last group, the last group is the people who need to receive this kind of care, the Job's, the Bethany's, those that are facing really difficult times. And let me assure you that even though everyone wants to help you as much as possible, we will get it wrong. We will goof it up sometimes. We will try to say something that we think is going to help, and maybe it will help, and maybe it won't. But I can guarantee you of one thing. I can guarantee you that the person who understands how to be present in the midst of pain more than anything else is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that he will come into that moment with you, in the moment of your greatest pain. And he may not come giving you all sorts of answers and all sorts of reasons and saying, this is why you suffered, but he will come and be present with you, sit alongside you. He will elbow other people out of the way to get to that, that seat, to sit with you, put his arms around you in the moment of your greatest terror, the moment of your greatest pain, and he will be alongside you. And you may say, but I don't hear him. I don't feel him. Um, he's still there. He is present with you through the most difficult of situations. As Job and his friends were silent for seven days and then went quite a number of days with Job's friends talking and, and Job fighting with them, God was silent, but that didn't mean he was absent. And finally, God said, where were you when I created the foundations of the mountains? Where were you when I said, this is as far as the sea will go and no further? He said, I was there as much as I am here with you, Job. Just as I hold the ocean in my hands, just as I watch the mountains, just as I, uh, as I oversee all of creation, just as I warm the earth with the sun this morning and inside Broadway Christian Church. As we warm uh, the whole place, as I care for the whole world, as I've created every human being, just as I've been present with all of them, I am present with you. So if you are in that point of struggle this morning, of pain, of suffering, of grief, of loss, um, know that even if those of us who are trying to help aren't always getting it right, that Jesus Christ is present with you in the midst of your suffering. Let's pray. God, I pray for those who are coming alongside those who are hurting regularly, that you would just affirm them this morning in their role as Job's friends sat and sympathized and listened and cried and, and wrapped their arms around him. 
I pray for those this morning who um, want to help, but they're not sure what to say, that you would give them permission to just show up and just be Jesus with skin on in that room, to be the, the Holy Spirit made physically manifest by the presence of a believer in Christ, walking through the door of that home, walking through the door of, of that coffee shop, through the door of that hospital room, and sitting down and loving and caring them, caring for them. God, I, I finally pray for those people who are in the midst of grief, of pain, of trauma, of loss themselves right now. And I pray that as your word says, that you would be a comforter to them, that you would give them peace that surpasses all understanding. And that as they look to the cross and realize that you understand pain, that you understand humiliation, that you understand uh, physical depletion, you understand death, loss, and grief, that you come manifest to us by the Holy Spirit and are present with us in the midst of our grief. We thank you for this gift in Jesus' name. Amen.